Welcome back to their episode of the Startup Therapy Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan, joined as always by Will Schroeder, my friend, the founder and CEO of Startups.com. Will, startups tend to start small, right? And then we have these aspirations and dreams of growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, one of the, the core metrics that we use, we tend to use around that is, is headcount. And, you know, you've run big teams, small teams, which one works better? Which one do you like more, right? Should we really have all these aspirations for just blowing <laughs> up our headcount? You know, what's funny is I was definitely in the big team camp, no doubt, as I think most people are, which is why we're going to talk about this today. But I was in the big team camp. Like I was all excited about growing big company, big staff, all these things. And then we did. We had like six, 700 people. We had a massive staff. This is the first, you know, st first startup I did. And I hated it. I hated it. The whole time that we were growing and adding all these people, like we were high-fiving each other because it sat like you see people getting added. You're like, sure. oh, that must mean success, yeah. growth, whatever, right? And it does sometimes, right? We're an ad agency, so there's no way to grow without adding more people that could build time. So they were the product, so you did need them to grow. But a lot gets lost as you start to grow. And I don't think it's necessarily necessary the way it used to be. Again, if you're building humans for time, yes, you're going to have to add people, right? But even then, you don't necessarily have to add them infinitely in order to build a great business. I think what we talk about today is how so much has changed, certainly with the advent of AI on the horizon, et cetera, that you can now build a huge business without having to add the burden of all of those people. And I think that part's interesting. Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, you, you said it right, which is that, you know, we dream of doing this. And then as it grows, the, the blush comes off that rose just a little bit, right? Like it's not as much fun as it sounded like. And it doesn't take a lot either. And I'm, I'm sure that it changes over time. If I go back to my own experiences through kind of growing through those various phases, I remember with startups, we did this. It was kind of we hit that 50 mark all of a sudden culture just starts to be very different all sorts of things yeah, change. but you know as, as i've grown up as a founder over the years that first one i remember just even going from five to ten all of a sudden felt like and part of that was it was now two different teams right so it wasn't a team we had essentially like a sales team on the front end and a development and design team on the back end and Boy, that was like, I don't know, cats and fire. I don't know, two, two <laughs> things that don't get along. And that just made things a lot less fun, right? It wasn't just about the size. It was about the dynamics that were then possible to be created between those two camps that formed. Right, right. And I got to tell you, it took a while. It took, I'd probably say like eight or nine years in my career for me to actually see an instance of where a small company by virtue of headcount had just this outsized kind of um, impact. The first time I saw it, again, it was kind of by accident. This is circa 2001, 2002, probably 2002, because it was definitely post-crash. So uh, some of the listeners will need to ask their parents about those dates. <laughs> Go ahead. We'll wait. <laughs> You're not wrong. And I get a call from a guy named Rulof Bota, who is now the managing director of Sequoia Capital. But fun story. Prior to that, was working with Elon Musk and Peter Thiel as the 27-year-old CFO of PayPal. He leaves PayPal, which was funded by Sequoia, goes to Sequoia as essentially an associate. And one of the first deals he does was with two weirdos starting some company called YouTube. <laughs> yep. I mean, dude, especially back then, if you're going to get something right, yeah. like that early in your career, like year one from cold calling. Not a bad hit. The first money in YouTube isn't, isn't the worst way to do it. So he did anyway. But at the time, he was still hustling on the phone, right? You know, trying to turn over deals, et cetera. And I was running this small company called Swapalease.com. Doesn't matter what it is. And uh, he calls and he said, hey, I think that model is really interesting. Would you be willing to talk to us? Are you looking to raise money? And I was like, well, we weren't until Sequoia called. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess now we are. I am now. 
nobody gets these calls like to this ever since then i've never gotten a call from sequoia right and i know them now right which probably saves them but anyway so rulep has me out and i'm there to pitch uh mike muritz who's like the big big vc at the time no idea why he was in the meeting but anyway i'm sitting in the uh in the lobby right i'm sitting in the lobby and in their lobby at the time this is in, in sand hill road they had the tombstones of all the companies that they had funded and taken public. And, and for those that don't know, a tombstone is basically like a commemorative plaque to say like, you know, we took something public. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the VC funding route, the fact that success is a tombstone, <laughs> <laughs> come on. It's so telling. What are we doing so here? Telling. So, but anyway, like it was, especially for, for their era, it was like the who's who of Silicon Valley companies, right? At the time, like Yahoo was a big deal and Yahoo was on there and Cisco was a big deal and Cisco was on there. And I remember Electronic Arts was there. My memory could be wrong on this. So if I am, I am. Um, I swear Apple was on there, right? I swear, like, just like these behemoth companies, right? Yes, massive, massive companies. Yep. So two things stuck to me. So I thought it was really interesting. The first was like this company, this venture capital company has had massive success, like uncanny in the size and scope. And since then, it's been 10x that, right? And the second was, I'm looking around and I'm like, this is as big as a dental office, right? <laughs> like This isn't a big, like major corporation. Nine people here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like there's almost nobody here. Now, I don't know how many people work there at the time. A lot of those venture firms have like the like Andreessen and stuff has staffed up a lot since then. But I swear there couldn't have been 20, 30 people in the building. Tops, right? The building, I mean, it wasn't even that much room. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the, the venture models change so much in terms of the, the type of support they try to provide their portfolio companies. And then just by virtue of being around a long time, they just have much bigger portfolios. So there's just a lot more to manage. So you just need more headcount. But yeah, back then, what would you what would you guess if you had to guess how many how many people do they have on staff? When I did the partner meeting, which is for folks listening, after you do your first pitch, if they like you, they usually have you in on Mondays and they do the full partner pitch. And I don't remember how many partners there were there at the time, enough to fit a room, maybe 15 at most. But I thought it was interesting that such a small number of people were controlling so much outcome. And that just always stuck with me. And, and we had just sold the agency the year before. And like I said, we had like six, 700 people. And I thought, man, that was a ton of work to try to like manage all those people. But back in the day, right? When the agency was really small, like 15 to 20 people, also just fun footnote, and no one was over 30. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody over yeah. 30 was, was yeah. like a senior citizen. We had a head count of 20 and our aggregate age was less than 200. How was yeah. that possible? <laughs> so anyway, everyone would always talk about back in the day, right? Oh, it was so much better back in the day when we could all go out, you know, and, and have lunch together and, you know, whatever. And they weren't wrong. I got to be honest, right? And so I guess at that moment, I started to look at it and say, you know, what the dream is the dream is to have that small, tight knit team, but to be doing something massive, right? In other words, not having to take on that liability. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just again, to your point, like it was so much more fun at certain stages because mm -hmm. of the size, like at the point at which you don't know everybody's name anymore, it's not as much fun, right? When you show just up not. at your own company and you're like, you feel like a bit of a stranger because I don't know those three people I'm about to walk past. Like, it's a weird feeling. But beyond that, I think that, you know, as we scale these things and as the headcount starts to grow, a lot of different dynamics start to appear. But the core point here is like, 
that's not how we should be measuring the growth of our company, right? Un unless you are like people.com. What do you have? People. We have people. And you need lots of people. That's cool. But for everybody else, you should be trying to scale that outcome, right? You should be trying to scale the impact that you're having and figuring out, you know, what's the most efficient we can be with the staff that we have and create the biggest outcomes possible. Because guess what else is really fun? Doing incredible shit with very few people that everybody can take a big piece and have a hand in. That's fun as shit, right? Where it gets interesting to me, especially now because we're in the tail end of a venture cycle, right? So you have a lot of heavily funded companies that are pairing back. It sucks. You know, it's part of the process. A lot of my friends are going through this process as leadership in these companies. It's brutal. I feel for them, but they'll tell you the same thing. Like, dude, okay, I've done this now. I will never do that again, right? Because they got enamored at this idea of scale and size and size equals value, right? And sometimes it does. Don't get me wrong. Other times you step back and say, was that really necessary? Did we grow because we thought we were supposed to grow? And I'm talking oh, about headcount. Yeah. Or did we grow because the product absolutely required it and there was no other option? Nah, yeah. <laughs> Very rarely is it the latter, right? Unless it's a services-based business. And even then, we talked about this before in the podcast, you got to figure out like, where's that point at which there's a diminishing return for just continuing to grow, right? As opposed to just being more efficient, you know, better profitability as opposed to just higher top line. But back to the, you know, the VC side, the venture cycle we've just come out of and watching what happened there, you know, it was, it was cool to watch companies post pandemic get funding again. Like that was great to see. Yeah. It was kind of cool to watch the headcounts go up and watch people hire lots of people. You know, what wasn't as cool when the massive layoffs started coming, this wasn't just a startup problem, right? There were big companies doing the same thing, right? Amazon adds 10,000 headcount six months later. Amazon cuts 10,000 people, right? <laughs> Sucks. Damn, it sucks. I guess when you look at it, like again, we keep a, aspiring to growth in this headcount, and I think you know what we cover here is it's not quite what you think it is. And I would I would argue in other cases, it's an easy way to be lazy by just adding headcount. Like I give you an example. So years ago, it's like mid two thousands. I was talking to Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist. Right, Craigslist has historically been this wild sleeping giant. Everything's about this corny business from the 90s that like does these weird things online. And they do. Like, that Actually, that is appropriate, right? It is part of it. What, <laughs> what they don't know or the story that never really got told is that behind the scenes, Craig Newmark and Jim and some of the other people that were working there with like 37 people. This was like, I'm kind of getting my dates wrong a little bit, like 2007-ish when I was talking about this. They had 37 people there. And he said something to me that just blew my mind. He said, Will, size creates dysfunction. Every person you add creates more dysfunction. Now, when he said that, and you didn't have to tell me this part because I'd already done my homework, they were doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue as a 37-person company. Seven-person company. Yep. Right? Amazing. With yep. all the pressure in the world, right? From the Ebays at the time, the Ebays of the world, what would later become Facebooks and everything else like that, trying to basically just burn them out of existence, right? On a model that everyone thought they could replicate. And even with hundreds of millions per year, by the way, per year of revenue and profit, right? Did he add thousands of people to combat these existential threats? No, he added like one gal. <laughs> that was it. There it is. We got it. We're good. Right. 38, done. Because he said, my job becomes harder when I add lots of people. The business becomes harder when I, and he wasn't wrong. But think of how he was able to do that, right? So imagine your eBay, for example, which was trying like crazy to get into his business. There's a fun backstory where they actually bought out one of his old shareholders and became an equity partner in Craigslist 
in order to like backdoor their way into the business, it's a huge lawsuit. But anyway, imagine your eBay, your Meg Whitman at the time, who's you know running eBay at the time, and you've got tens of thousands of people trying to displace this tiny, dinky company. 37 people, right? It's mind-blowing. Power of an insurgent. You're looking at your own people like, what the fuck are you guys doing all yeah. <laughs> Have you beat them yet? Uh, you just told us to do that two hours ago. There's 10,000 of you. There's yeah. 38 of them. Get it done, right? Like, what is taking so long? Exactly. Make it happen. But let's talk about the size creates dysfunction, kind of what that actually means. Ryan, you and I are starting Mythical New Business, and there's just the two of us. If I'm not doing something... Sounds great. I know you're doing it. If you're not doing yep. something, you know I'm doing it. There is nowhere to place blame. There is nowhere to place, like, to, to hand the ball to. You can only pass to one person, so you always know who's, who's going to catch the ball, right? The moment we had a third person, I don't know which of you is getting it done. Yeah. Right? And once we had a fourth person and a fifth person, as that gets bigger, no one's directly responsible for what other people aren't responsible for. It's kind of shared in this amorphous way, right? Therein lies the beginning of your dysfunction right? When it's nobody's ball, right? No one knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. Right. And as the thing gets bigger, and for folks of you that have staffed up, you've seen this, right? Ryan, you and I have seen it as, as we've added more and more people. You had a manager of a manager. You know, is it is the manager's job or the manager of a manager? No, you have clear roles and responsibilities and everything's, yeah, bullshit. None of that uh -huh. actually works. Yeah. Right? Nope. <laughs> Sounds great. It doesn't actually work that way. But as you get bigger, everyone has a portion of the responsibility, right? Like you and I, you're running marketing. I'm running like a strategy and whatever the fuck else I do, right? We know our roles. If marketing doesn't get done, it's on you. If our strategy stuff, we're not doing acquisition or doing whatever, that's on me. We had 40 of us to the mix. Who the hell knows, right? Who the hell knows? You know, something that's really funny about everything we talk about here is that none of it is new. Everything you're dealing with right now has been done a thousand times before you, which means the answer already exists. You may just not know it, but that's okay. That's kind of what we're here to do. We talk about this stuff on the show, but we actually solve these problems all day long at groups.startups.com. So if any of this sounds familiar, stop guessing about what to do. Let us just give you the answers to the test and be done with it. There's a whole lot of stuff happening. I'm not sure any of it's valuable or in the direction we want it to go, but a whole lot of stuff will happen. Yeah, I think that's one of the other interesting things that happens as growth occurs. Not only does this, like the clear lines of demarcation and responsibility start to blur big time, so does the point at which decisions get made, right? Like right now, if there's a big decision to be made in Mythco, it's the two of us or based on our responsibilities, it's one or the other of us. And then you end up with these weird like follow-on decisions or these things that just happen by proxy. Whereas it used to be, hey, we've set new sales targets. We need a new salesperson. And then that was the end of the discussion. At some point you get to a certain scale where it's like, hey, I heard sales is hiring a new person. We're going to need to add somebody else to the social media team to make sure that. And then there's all of these like knock-on domino effect decisions. And this to me is, is probably the, the most fertile breeding ground for that type of size dysfunction that starts to occur because decentralized decision-making sounds fantastic, but when it starts to fall off of the strategic path and now it just becomes reactionary to a decision that someone else made that may not have anything to do with the strategic path, but now you're following it because, well, they did that, so therefore we need to do this. And then some other department's going to have to add. And it just starts to spiral out of control really quick. And it's not like we have any time to go back and audit and say, like, did we really need to add the three other people in addition to that salesperson? Never happens, right? You don't have time to go back and look at it. I like a concentration of accountability. 
Yeah, yeah. Right? For sure. Like at startups.com, we have a very flat org chart, right? Very flat. And it's stayed that way for 11 years. And even though you know, we still have a lot of people, the org chart's very flat. Why is it very flat? Because you, me, Elliot, and everybody else, we believe that every general should carry a gun and go into battle, right? Like, like we, we don't believe there should be managers. We believe everybody should be in the mix, like doing shit. Like, you know, you and I, before we had this, uh, we started recording, I was telling you how I was creating content yesterday. I spent the whole day, you know, creating content, right? We don't have staffs of people to do that. We could hire them, but this is where I would correct. Do we have to, right? If we want to invite dysfunction, we could. Or you get what I consider to be the 70% employee. And what I mean by that is we don't need a FTE. We don't need a full-time 100% person, but there's enough work that we need 70% of someone's time to be able to take on that work. Now that's cool. But then you hire the next person at 70%, the next person at 70%, the next person at 70%. And all of a sudden, nobody's 100% necessary but nobody's ever used to working 100% either. So we keep hiring 70% resources, yeah. right? And somehow that math never balances itself out. Like you don't get to the fourth person. You're like, well, we've created 120%. So we just got a free human. It never rebalances because as you know, like once you set that watermark for this is what your job looks like, if you've been operating at 70% for a year, you're going to continue, right? You're not going to all of a sudden be like, oh, well, I guess I can do 100% now and we won't have to hire that new person. Said no one ever. <laughs> There's a funny little story that, that you'll remember. When we bought Zirtual, our virtual assistant business, and we bought it from the previous owners, I was talking to some of the, the VCs that had funded it. And I'd gone through all of their numbers. And I said, guys, do you realize that you've got like 75% utilization? They're like, yeah, 75% is pretty good. I was like, no, it's terrible. Yeah, right? I'd come from the agency world. I was like, here's how I need you to think about 75% utilization. You have 400 people that are W-2 full-time people billing at 75%, which means you have the equivalent of 100 people billing at 0%. You're literally paying 100 people to do nothing. That's how bad 75% is. And somehow you're losing money. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder. I think I figured it out. Yeah, yeah, right. I know. So, but think about that that 70% principle, or in this case, the 75% principle. You get to a point where if you're if you're not hiring people that are fully effective, you're adding this amount of blow. And it compounds. Zirtual wasn't that big of a company when we bought it in the grand scheme of companies. But they had a hundred people getting paid to do nothing. Not directly. These are all good people. And, you know, I'm not questioning their salary, but numerically. Well, and again, it went back to like, that was one of the metrics that they were using was showing that was part of how they pitched that funding round was headcount growth. Look at how fast we're adding assistance because we need to. We're adding them way faster than we need to, but, you know, hold that aside for now. That became a very important statistic very shortly after that. By the time we acquired that business, you know, I was enamored with this idea of size and efficiency. And I watched more and more companies and founders start to kind of embrace this. And I started to watch these outsized hits. A few years back, when I was living in LA, David Hanemeyer Hansen had just moved to this insane house in Malibu, right? And which is a good example of, of what I'm about to get into. Basecamp, you know, he and Jason Fried started Basecamp in just printed money. That thing did so incredibly well, tens of millions of dollars of revenue. And they had enough revenue to staff hundreds and hundreds of people. Yep, they had 50. And so David and I are having lunch and we're just talking about his staff and his growth and everything else like that. And I said, how big is your open headcount right now? I'm just curious. I know you've been historically a small business. He said, it's zero. I said, yeah, but you know, you talk about the business has grown pretty well. He's like, exactly. He said, our goal is to not hire any more people. And what's interesting about David, I mean, he's, he's a super smart guy, right? You know, he's, he created Ruby on Rails, you know, back in the day, like he's just, he's just a brilliant guy, but he's just, he's a philosopher in my mind. Like he has these deep seated philosophies 
And one of his philosophies that was, we should be scaling the function of our staff, not the staff, which how prescient is that in the age of AI right now? Think of how many things, right? Just got taken off the table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and imagine like in, in that model, then imagine how excited they are about that because this opens up an entirely new gateway is presumably there are some theoretical limits. It's like, we want to keep growing, but we want to ever add another person, right? You're going to be continuously squeezing efficiencies, looking for ways to do that. And then something like AI comes along that gives them an absolute like new lever to pull and create a whole bunch of potential scale on the outcome side and the revenue side without having to scale a single human, which is really interesting, right? So it's companies like that that I'm watching really closely right now. Like, how are they implementing AI? What are they doing with it? Because they've set themselves up for exactly this moment. I find a couple like places where the I have to add more people thing breaks, right? I'll give you some examples. I mean, you and I deal with this all the time. First thing is somebody comes to us, let's say within our own org here at startups.com, and they say, hey, I'm tapped. I've got so much going on. I need help. Let's bring on some more staff. Okay, cool. Question one, this is bananas. Do you have to be doing all the things you've been doing, right? As if that's sacred, as if everything I've been doing, by the way, exactly the way I was doing it has to be done. We've only made correct decisions until now, and we've only <laughs> built exactly the right process with exactly the right people until this day. So yeah, we're good, right? It's just not possible. So one of the things, Ryan, I think we've done particularly well and we've gotten better at it over the years is we audit process. When somebody says, I'm buried, our first question is, an, oh, I guess it needs more human. We looked at it and say, well, why are you doing all the things that you're doing? Now, you know, here's some things that you wouldn't think of. Often the person that's coming to us saying, hey, you know, I'm buried, and they are, right, justifiably, they're still doing shit you thought they stopped doing years ago. Or they're doing stuff that, that you forgot to tell them to stop doing. Right. Or that you never told them to do that they decided they wanted to try and somehow it just became part of their process, but it doesn't add any value. Yeah. Right. Now, when you go digging, man, I mean, it's, it's so rare that I don't find, even in my own workload, that I don't find 15 to 25% of stuff. It's like, you know what? I could probably stop doing that and probably nothing will happen. And that's usually my approach. I'll just stop doing it. And now let's see, right? Because I've got some other stuff I want to go do. If I don't do this, I can go do that instead. This is a good analog from, from back in the day, particularly when we used to all be in office. A big one was, well, I'm stuck in meetings all day. Stop going to meetings. I dude, yes, yes. Wait, what? I, I stopped responding to all emails. It's like, it's if somebody like, emails me and they need something from me, I'll wait until the second time to make sure they really needed it. And guess what happened? About 80% of the time, there was no follow-on request right? Meaning that I didn't need to do the work, right? Whatever it was that they thought they needed, they didn't need. And so that would have just been time poured straight down a drain. The first question becomes, what work can you stop doing? I mean, it sounds heretical. Like what? Stop doing work? What do you mean? But when you give people the agency to say, is some of the work you're doing bullshit? They're like, yeah, man, I'm doing this one repetitive task or, you know, I'm doing this, whatever. And you're like, okay, let's just stop doing that or do it differently or et cetera, right? Very few people audit the work first. As soon as somebody says, I need more headcount, they're like, oh, I guess you need more headcount. It's like, what are you actually doing, right? The next thing is, do we need a full-time person just because you have 10% more work to do? This is the fallacy, right? If we're 90% utilized, we feel like we're 120% utilized, right? But if we're 120 or 110% utilized, we feel like... like we will never get past this, right? In other words, 90% makes you feel pretty overworked, but 110% yeah. feels like 100% more. It's non-sustainable. Right, exactly, right? But so a lot of times what we're trying to do, or actually trying to do, is cut back 20%, right? Reduce some workload. But the way we solve for that 
throw people at it, right? More people, more people, right? Now, all of a sudden, we're not improving anything. We're just trying to solve for 20% of workload, which again, again, there are countless examples of this, but the same thing comes back to, we should not take organization is growing and adding people as gospel because it's not. It's not. It's not. And very smart people have figured this out. I don't know. Like Using that as that vanity metric for growth is kind of like saying, I can afford to keep 200 light bulbs on at my house all the time. Yes. Right. Do you need that many lights on? No, but I can afford to do that. Right. I can afford this many people. I can afford to pay these number of salaries. That makes me feel good about myself, right? This tends to be where this comes from, right? I generally see like when you start to like show off headcount and I've done it, right? I've done it a hundred times. Like, yeah, yeah, we're up to 500 people now. That feels good for some reason because it's some measure of success, right? Mm -hmm. I think it feels quantified. It is. It's quantified, but something that other people will understand, right? Which there are so few other things in a startup founder's journey that other people really understand that I think it's one of those things that we glom onto and we're like, okay, I can tell my buddy who works at Nationwide that we've got 500 people now. That's bigger than his department. So at least he'll have some idea what the hell I'm talking about. And they're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of people. I thought you guys were a little startup company, right? And your garage still, right? Yeah, no, not anymore. But so we need these things, but it is not a good metric. Great for parties, bad for running your business. That's <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And so I look at it and I say, okay, what's the most we can do with the smallest amount of staff? I start looking at current state of the state. Now, I'll give you some examples that, because I don't want to say it just happened. It's been happening. When WhatsApp sold to Facebook for $19 billion, dude, they had 55 people. This goes back to my example about Craigslist and eBay. What the fuck was Facebook doing all day? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) That 55 people could do your job, right? It also makes you wonder on transactions like that. It just, I can never help but look at that and go, are they doing that math too? Are they like, if we had put the right 28 people towards this, we could have saved ourselves $19 billion. Like, do they ever think of it that way? It just seems so hysterical to me that they pay for these. And good, look, it was, it was an outcome. They got tons of users. They got, it was, it was a lot of daily actives. Like all those things were great, but my God, what a premium over what it costs the company they bought it from. Because up to that point, like, what had they invested in that, right? What had they put in? Not nearly as much as Facebook did. We know that. It's unbelievable. Around that same time, I remember Notch sold Minecraft, right? Which was this little tiny company in Europe. And they had like, well, like 40 people or whatever. He sold it for like two and a half billion dollars. That's freaking Minecraft. My kids yeah. play Minecraft. Every kid I know <laughs> plays Minecraft. Most adults yeah. at this point, right? Like it's unbelievable what they're able to do with such a small staff. I think there's a bit of an ethos within a company to say, we're here to build a great product, you know, like outwardly, right? We want to have massive impact. Ryan, you and I want to have a massive impact, right? With millions and millions of founders, right? It's super important to us. Yep. Here's the way I would say that. The more founders we can help by just making their lives easier and helping them see around corners, the better. Now that said, whether we help one or 10 million, so long as we're helping founders, we're doing our job, right? You know, we're contributing. But if it winds up taking the same amount of effort from us, same amount of staff, whatever, and helping even more, benefit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Wins all like, around, right? If I can help two people at the same time or 10 people at the same time or 100 people at the same time right. without diluting that help too much, then give me the 100. Like, that's what you want. Right. And that's the goal. So I think, you know, what we've set ourselves up as, and I'm starting to see this with lots of other startups, I think we're all finally getting to the point where the glitz and glamour and kind of the distraction of just building and adding staff is starting to wither. 
And for the first time, and again, with the help of all kinds of new tools and opportunities, we can focus more on how big of an opportunity we build without having to build scores and scores of people just to work there. It ain't factory living anymore. Anymore, it's about how much impact you have, not how many people you hire. So in addition to all the stuff related to founder groups, you've also got full access to everything on startups.com. That includes all of our education tracks, which will be funding, customer acquisition, even how to manage your monthly financers. There's so much stuff in there. All of our software, including BizPlan for putting together detailed business plans and financials, LaunchRock for attracting early customers, and of course, Fundable for attracting investment capital. When you log into the startups.com site, you'll find all of these resources available.